<clears throat> well, um, first of all, <laughs> I have to tell you, I'm, I'm super excited about that. If those of you guys weren't here last week, I just want you to know what that was, was we, um, you know, my hair kind of got a little excited and I want him to be as excited as he was. But I want you just to real sum it up. What we said is what if we took all the resources in this room across all four campuses and said, what if we just took all the resources and said, what if we, what if we raised a bunch of money and just kept none of it and gave it all away? What would happen? What kind of story would that paint? Uh, what kind of picture would that paint of the church and the community? And so we went big, and it, was, it has been so fun. And that was one of the most emotional things I've ever been a part of. And um, I found out later, you know, just as I was talking to some of those folks, I was like, I, I have two of my friends who have, each, have, each of them have four, uh, one of them has three, three kids, the other one has four kids. And they both have found their way because of Families Forward. Like they would still be figuring out how, they, they managed to regather their life together because of Families Forward. And I was like, and I told this to the people at Families Forward, and they started crying. And I told my friends last night who I was with, who my kids are great friends, I said, we, we got to give this check to the people at Families Forward. And they started to get emotional because they know how much it matters. So way to go, you guys. I'm very, very proud um, to be part, of, as Maher said, uh, about, of, about a church that says, what if we did something just completely, no strings attached, generous in the community? So beautiful stuff. One of the things I learned last week is, I, by the way, I should tell you, I'm wearing this new microphone. I am totally self-conscious about it. I hate it, okay? I literally feel like I feel, <laughs> we, we refer to this microphone as the Britney Spears mic because at any moment, just, you know, it could just boom, boom, boom. <laughs> so, like I should be singing or, and I, you don't want me to do any of those things. And I'm, it, everything sounds weird. They just tell me this is going to sound way better on the podcast. For those of you guys who have down, tried to download a message, I guess, I never listen to myself because that's torturous. But I guess if you listen, there's times where I'm like, I'm fine. And there's times where I'm screaming at you and times where you're like, I can't, I don't know what he said. I have no idea. So um, this is supposed to help with that. So if I get a little like, what is on my neck? That's me being self-conscious. Anyways, here's what I was going to say. <laughs> what I learned last week is that um, when we ask and we, we come forward and we move it as a, as a church in a challenge that says, what would it look like if we were generous? What I realize is the giving itself is an avenue to great, powerful, contagious worship. And I think at some times in my life, I actually realize I've done this probably as a leader in the church too. Some cases in my life, I've actually feel like I've probably treated the, the act of giving, whatever that might look like in an offering as we bring each week or whatever else we talk about. I think I actually talk about it or think about it sometimes in terms as if giving is an, is an obstacle to worship. And it is a great avenue. Gosh, it was so fun last weekend, if you were with us, to see kind of the energy and the enthusiasm of people going, what if we did, and what if we could? So I am learning a huge thing, even about my own heart, that I think I actually sometimes think about giving as an obstacle to overcome rather than an avenue to worship. And I'm so, so glad we got a little glimpse of that this last weekend. And it really is an act of rebellion. As we start our next, as we kind of, you know, start the week, the second week of our series on how to, how to start a revolution, we kind of get this sense that, that giving like that is an act of rebellion. It's an act of rebellion against the world that says, here's how you're supposed to treat money. Here's how you're supposed to think about other people. We just go, no, 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 no. What we're going to do is a, literally it's an act of rebellion against every other mode of thinking about resources and money. So it's beautiful to be a part of it. Um, as we look at this series... Um, no matter what you think about Jesus, whether someone dragged you here, you were tricked into being here, you thought this was the hospital, and you're like, well, this is a really nice waiting room with a loud band. Uh, but whatever, for whatever reason you came in here, regardless of what you think about Jesus, he is a person who, revolu who revolutionized everything. The way in which you think about the world before Jesus and after Jesus is so two totally different worlds. 
The way time is oriented, the way we talk about stuff, Jesus literally changed the world. So regardless of what you think about him, the world has changed because of him, because of his revolutionary ideas. And so we're going to talk about that, what his, not only his ideas, but what he actually came to do and accomplished. And it is going to be a great series leading into to Easter. So we'll be in Luke again if you're with us before, for a while we're back in Luke. Um, but let's, let's pray and we'll get into today's message. Jesus, we are grateful people. It's so obvious that this is a group of grateful people because of the generosity that's been expressed both in serving um, and in the financial giving uh, over this past two weeks. Lord, we are grateful. We're grateful that you are radically and fearlessly generous with us, that you have a revolutionary kind of love for us. And Father, we need a revolution in big ways and in maybe smaller ways in our lives in so many capacities. We live in a world, Jesus, where fear and hate rule the day, and we need that to be different. We need a revolution in our own lives. Father, as we walk into today, we know that um, across the spectrum of people that would walk in here, there are some who are, are sort of up and ahead and are feeling full and are feeling energized, and there are those of us who are going, we just are, we don't know what we have left in the tank, and so Jesus, in either capacity, would you be near to us in a very real and tangible way? As Karimi, Karimi prayed, would there be your presence, would your presence be known in this place? Lord, each week as we gather, we get an opportunity just to pause. It may be the only silence we experience in our lives. And so, Father, we ask that you would speak to us in the stillness and the quiet, where we no longer produce any words, we just listen to you, that you might speak to our hearts about the areas of our life that are in need of a revolution. Lord, we give to you our very lives out of gratitude, not out of obligation, but out of joy and out of a need for real hope. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Um, well, if you want to follow along with us, you can take out the outline, which is in your bulletin. If you want to follow along on the screen, you, want, you brought your own Bible. It'll be primarily in Luke chapter 4, but we're going to get there in kind of a roundabout way. So, um, you can follow along however you want, um, but as we, as just as we're, you know, whatever helps you kind of to learn. Now, as we look at Jesus, Jesus, like I said before, is a revolutionary figure. He says and does things that are crazy. He's saying, um, he, and he has this one trait that every, every revolutionary has to have, which is that they have to have a picture, a realistic picture, not only of what is presently happening, but they also have, have to have a vision of what could be, what ought to be. And Jesus as a person who is walking around with a picture of the way things ought to be. The Bible talks about Jesus as someone who had sustained, who, who was present at the time of creation, who is instrumental in that nothing exists without him, even at the time of creation. Meaning, he has a perfect design for how everything is supposed to be in his own brain. He has that. He has seen it. He's authored the perfect creation that has been sort of broken. So he has a picture in his own mind, and he has a picture of what he begins to say stuff about how things ought to be. Um, you guys have maybe seen some of these things. I want to show you. There's a, a couple pictures uh, that I want you to capture just of things that ought to be and then how they actually are. So here's a couple things. These mostly come from cooking, unfortunately. But here you go. This is a, um, you guys were with us, I think two weeks ago we talked about, you know, I want to be where the people are. Okay, this is the inspiration for that. No, this is just a cookie, an aerial cookie. Here's, that's what, that's what ought to be. Here's what actually is. Yeah, they got pretty close. <laughs> 
Okay, here's another one. Here we go. Um, this is Cookie Monster cookies. This is, this is what ought to be and how cute they are and everything else like that. And here's what actually is. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry, children. Run away in fear. <laughs> Happy birthday. Oh my gosh. Okay. Supposed to let those cool evidently before you put the little icing on there. Okay. Next one. That is a cute bear pancake. Isn't that so great? Here's, here's your bear pancake. <laughs> does that wait? Leave that up there. For, does that not look like a, a like a frog or a toad got run over? That is just sad. Roadkill bear. Uh, okay, and then lastly, here's this one. Um, so this is okay. So this before we go to the next slide, this is uh, this is obviously a little girl, and a, a guy wanted to have her immortalized on his arm as a tattoo. And this is what how cute she is, what she's supposed to look like, and that's the scariest human being that ever walked the face of the earth. This is my daughter. Isn't she cute? Oh my gosh. No, yes. Yeah, breathtaking. Anyway, Seinfeld fans. Anyways, <laughs> there is a picture. We talk about a revolution that someone has a clear understanding of not only what ought to be, but they have a clear understanding of what is. And they have to call out the insufficiency of what presently is and also invite people into convincing them, showing them, demonstrating by whatever ways they have about what ought to be. And Jesus has that in spades. He says and he understands what he, what's going on. He understands the way the world is, but he's calling people to the way things ought to be. Now, as we, as we talk about what this looks like, um, we just, you know, last, well, I should say this way. In, even in talking about Families Forward, the, the, our, one of our, you know, partners in the community, this is a group of people who look at the world and go, they say, gosh, the, the person to whom we gave that check, her name's Margie. She goes, she has this great line. And we're talking together, we're, you know, we're just, she's giving us the tour and all kinds of stuff. And she says, what we do here is we serve people who feel, what is it, who feel forgotten. In other words, what she says, it was a powerful statement of vision, just as she was kind of, and she threw it out kind of like, you know, this is one of, one of the many things we do. She's a super sharp lady. But what, I, what she says is, it's not okay. There is a situation in the world in which people feel forgotten, and that's unacceptable, and so we have to live and work towards what ought to be. And I thought, that's a person who understands a revolution. And Jesus is no different. Last week, if you were with us, we highlighted a little bit about Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is speaking to, he kind of has his homecoming moment. He's been out working around in the community. He's gaining a reputation, and he shows up at home. And as he goes in to speak in the, in the synagogue, which is in the area there, there's, you know, there's, as, they, as the, the Jews were spread out throughout all of the land, they started to form these synagogue learning communities. And he walks into his, which is in his home hometown, and he begins to read. Now, you have to know, before I read this, which we talked about last week, I'm going to read the same passage from last week. But before I read, I have to tell you this. There is a historical precedent that's here, which says, which really matters, which says it's a common practice for people. If they owe you money and they cannot pay, that you lock them up. They are in jail until they can pay, which is a really strange thing. Like, how does someone pay you back if they're in jail? Which means people are frequently locked up when they can no longer pay. Now, imagine if you have ever missed a payment on anything from your, you know, cell phone bill to your insurance to what a credit card, you get a few phone calls. You get, a, you get some harassment and it's like, leave me alone. But what, here's what happens back then. Literally, you can't pay. It is the option of the person who is your creditor to just throw you in jail right there. This is the way in which a ton of people live. And the only other option would be something called indentured servitude, meaning you can't pay, well, then you just become my slave until you, you've earned it all off. Now, I want to read you this passage Jesus reads from the book of Isaiah when he goes into the synagogue. Here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You read, read this last week. Because he's anointed me, which means chosen me, to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed, for, oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now he's reading from Isaiah 61. And if, you, if you're looking at um, your Bible, generally what you have is over certain passages, you have these other, these sort of like headings. They're kind of bold writing, and, you know, on the margin or whatever, bold, not in the margin, but in, in between passages. And in some translations, the subject heading over Isaiah 61 has this phrase, the Messiah's Jubilee. The Messiah's Jubilee. Meaning that there's this person called the Anointed One, which in Hebrew is the word Messiah, Meshiach. That person's going to come and initiate something called the Jubilee. Now, when we think about Jubilee, first of all, the book of Isaiah is written about, somewhere between scholars of disagreement, between 500 and 800 years before Jesus. And this time will come when someone called the Messiah will have this sort of Jubilee proclamation. When we think about Jubilee, at least when I do, I think about things like, you know, parties, parades, you know, there's like a used car lot or Paul, the king of big screens, is having a big sale. It's the blowout Jubilee, whatever it might be. And usually a Jubilee commemorates generally an anniversary, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It's some kind of marker of time in which it's like, this is the 10th anniversary Jubilee when we're having all of our Mazdas are on sale now, whatever it is. Now, this is essentially, there's a historical meaning to which Jesus is speaking to. I'm going to get a little, this is a little bit of like, again, Bible jujitsu sort of stuff. And we'll come back to Luke in just a second. But here, just stay with me. So Jesus reads this and then it says he sat down and, you know, at, at everyone who was staring at him. And he, there's this moment here where he starts talking about this jubilee. And here's what he means. If you look at Exodus 23, here's what it says just on the screen. For six years, this is God speaking to his people after they'd been freed from captivity in Egypt. You're to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year that the land lie unplowed and unused, leaving the land fallow. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So stay with me. For six years, you work really hard. You do whatever you've got to do to harvest. You, you, know, you raise your animals, whatever you've got to do. And in the seventh year, you just let the land just kind of lay the way it is, and you don't harvest it, and you let the poor Go and take what they need. You do the same with the olive groves and the vineyard. You just let the poor come and eat. You just don't do it. You let the land provide for you and for the poor. Now, that's every seventh year. But there is this jubilee year in which something else. By the way, the, the intention here is to say you have to just let stuff go. It is not important for you. But can I, if anybody in here has a three to 14-year-old girl in their house, are you not so tired of the song Let It Go in your house right now? just want to let you know. It is unbelievable. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the message. <laughs> just saw the words on my notes that said, let it go. Anyway, the Sabbath year is a year in which everybody goes, we just let stuff go. We let, it, we let, our, we let the fields have, we let whatever's happening in the field, we let that stay. People can come and have stuff. Now, there is then every seventh, after every seventh Sabbath year, there is something kind of unique that happens. That means it's, so there's 49 years, and then the 50th year, this is what happens. Check out what it says in Leviticus 25. Count off. Seven Sabbath years. Yes, seven times seven. So that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. The sound of, sound of trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. Now, what this means is, there is now, not only are you letting it go for year 49, but at year 50, everything that, once, that you have held as a creditor over people is released back to them. Any debts you have are released, and you get to retrieve your own land back. Remember, land is wealth. 
You get to have your land back. Anything that you once owed, every 50 years, the debts are canceled, everything's restored. The actual word that you see here, not just proclaim liberty, the, the word in Hebrew is actually the word release. And in reading the, the English translation of the Hebrew Bible, you know, this is what Hebrew scholars wrote. They said this, the way this is written is actually hallow or make holy the 50th year, proclaim release throughout the land for all its inhabitants. There's a term used, the root of this word, the word release. It's a term used throughout this region of the area called Mesopotamia. There's a term used that describes a general release by kings for the purpose, listen to this, of creating stability and restoring order. In other words, you have people who are going about their way of life in their sort of business, whatever else they got going, all of whatever's supposed to happen, and every so often, a king would just go, wait, 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 everybody's getting a little too greedy. General release. Everybody gets to go back to where things are supposed to be so that they could retain order. What this means is, it isn't by retaining a tight control on things that order is kept. Every 50th year, which means every second generation essentially, everything is released to restore order. Now we have a difficult idea, we have a really hard time with this. The idea that things could be released, that there would be order restored, as we get into further you know, conversations about Jesus and this kind of, the way he revolutionarily talks about stuff, the idea of releasing things, releasing people from bondage to us in things like forgiveness, just for example, which we'll get into later, in things like actual debt is actually a way to restore order. It is a way that we no longer hold on to things that actually hold us captive. And Jesus is saying, remember, he's speaking here to a group of people, and he's saying, this is the year of the Lord's Jubilee. It's going to be unbelievable. And here's the heart behind it. God, not people, owns everything. He gets to determine how all of his tenants, the people, have to live in his land. And he says every 50th year, we're not going to keep people in servitude any longer. Any debts, any reasons why they would owe us, any people who are locked up, these captives, these oppressed, we're letting them go free. But there's a problem. That's really great news for you if you owe a lot of things. It's really great news if you've been kicked out of your land or your land is being occupied by other people. But it's pretty tough news if you're a creditor, <laughs> if you're owed money, if you're trying to send your kids to college, if you're trying to do whatever it is you're trying to do. And every 50th year, it's like, I'm sorry, we just don't do that anymore. That's a little bit of a challenge. That's something that's actually quite quite scary. Now, historians have some debate about this, but basically, generally, there's an agreement that there's no record of this jubilee year ever actually being practiced by God's people. They never actually did it. Now, it's almost like, shocking, it's almost like the forgiveness of debts it's almost like the releasing of people is something that's hard for people to do. <laughs> Shocking, I know. That in some way or another, part of our own nature says, releasing people, that's not what we do. We keep people under our thumb. We keep people under our power, our influence, because that's really how we restore order. But no, 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 what Jesus is saying, what God's saying here is there is a release of captivity that restores order. This is a pretty incredibly revolutionary idea. Jesus is at his hometown. He comes home for his own homecoming. And this is this moment, too, where he begins to start saying, this is what ought to be, folks. 
this year of the Lord's like chosen person, this anointed one, is here right now. It's the year of the Jubilee. And whatever is the status quo, Jesus clearly knows it. I mean, he's aware of it. He's lives, he's, he lives He lives as a poor guy out in you know, this little outpost called Nazareth. His, you know, his dad's a carpenter. He's likely in the same trade as him. And he knows what it's like to be under Roman oppression. He knows what that's like. And he's saying there's a new era, and it's here now, and I'm initiating it. Here's what he says in, in verse 21 of Luke 4. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's not just simply saying, isn't it going to be great one day when this happens? Which is what most people would read that scripture and say. They would just say, someday it's going to be great. Everybody will have this. That's going to be the best. And he says, no, no, no. Today, we're starting that. We talked about it last week. Today, we're starting this very idea. This is what's happening. I'm inaugurating it. It's going to happen. In fact, it's unfolding right now in your presence. I am the, res- I am the revolution. The year of the Lord, the season of Jubilee, whatever it is, has, has begun right now. And that season of Jubilee, this year of the Lord's favor, isn't just about, now there's some, there's, people look at this a lot of different ways. Some will say, oh, this is just a spiritual awakening for all the people. It's just like everyone's going to have a new understanding of God. Okay. Some say, this is clearly just about a social action, kind of, this is what Jesus is all about, it's just about the social action here. But here's what's happening. It is a whole thing. The revolution is a whole person, whole world kind of life-changing thing. It is... It is this spiritual restoration, it is moral transformation. It is rescue from demonic possession, which we'll see next week as we look at the scripture going forward. It's a release from illness and from disability. We saw last or two weeks ago we had a, a healing service, which is one of the most you know, powerful, you know, it's, it's, a, it's like you get to see God at work almost instantly in some cases. But it's a bold step of faith. But here's what, these are all the things that are supposed to happen in this year of Jubilee. And Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen in in your presence, in your midst, and I'm bringing it to you. And then they say this. This is their reaction to Jesus who's saying all these things, these revolutionary ideas. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. This is verse 22. Now, you have to look at this. They're like, wow, that's great. You're saying great things, Jesus. But then they say this. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Meaning, it's great that you said all that stuff, but who are you to be saying it? Aren't you a little over, aren't you a little ahead of yourself? Aren't you, I mean, come on, you're Joseph's kid. And Joseph, this is again a little bit of debate, but Joseph as a person is kind of, his reputation is a little bit debatable. This is a guy who's, again, he's a, he's a tradesman, he's a carpenter, but which isn't a, a, a job held in high esteem back then. But he's also a guy who married this woman who kind of has some weird circumstances that go around her, her being pregnant. Like there might have been something that wasn't supposed to happen there and she's pregnant before they're married and what's, what's going on there, Joseph? And he still married her, which means he actually brought dishonor on himself. Isn't this Joseph's son? There's this kind of moment where they go, this is, I don't think you're supposed to be saying this. Here's what they say actually in the book of Mark. Here's, it even says even a little differently. Here's this parallel passage in Mark 6, 6 2. Where'd this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Meaning, (laughs) we know you. 
You know, you and I, we carpooled the T-ball together. You, you're, you're, you know, Jesus and my son, we were hanging out together. We've been in PTA together. We know the brothers and sisters here. We know you, you're, there's nothing special about you guys. There's nothing going on here that we think is special. You're just, you're just, you're just Jesus. You're just Jesus. How, how in the world do you start acting and talking like as if you're something kind of special, as if there's something going on here that we ought to know about and be excited about? You keep talking about these revolutionary ideas. You know what is, and you're pointing us toward what ought to be, but you're just Jesus. You're just Jesus. We know your sisters. We know your mom and, you know, reputation of your dad, too. We know, you know, you can't, what good could come from Nazareth? What good could come from you? This whole world transformation Jesus is talking about can't be possible, they would say, because Jesus isn't enough. This Jesus guy who is around us right now, we know him, he can't be enough. There's no way that this year of the Lord's Jubilee, whatever that is, there's no way it could be. He's not enough. He's not big enough. You know, if you've ever been, you know, I know some high school students, you know, when you you go to, eventually you're going to go to a high school reunion. And the only thing you're going to be focused on when you go to a high school reunion, not just homecoming, but like a high school reunion when you go home, the only thing you're going to be thinking about is, and this is, we're all shallow people, and every, no, people won't admit this, but this is really the truth. We're all, going to, we're all looking at how bald and how out of shape everybody else is compared to us. That's all we're looking for. Guys, you know, women, maybe you're not looking for the baldness in the other women. That's, maybe you are. But, but, you know, guys, what we're looking at is how out of shape is that person and how bald is that person? My hairline's receding. Is it less than there? I mean, it's what you're all, you're just thinking about that stuff. That's all you're wondering. Are they, are they, they're, they're a little, they're a little pudgy. And, and then the other thing you think about is, what do, what do they do? What do they do with their life? Turns out all of my friends, when I went back to my high school, my, my 10th high school reunion, I haven't been to my 20th, it's just coming up this year. But when, when I go to like, it's, they're almost all lawyers. They're all lawyers or they're like super rich financial consultant people. And I'm like, this is my 10th anniversary, my 10th reunion. I was, a, I was a high school pastor. And they're talking, they're literally speaking to each other in legal jargon, you know? Hey, habeas corpus. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Uh, that's hilarious. I mean, it's like, what? You know, like, and, I, and they're like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, I, I work with high school kids. Anyway, so habeas corpus, you know, rid of, you know, ex post facto, whatever. And I'm, you know, I'm like, I, I don't, anyways. So, um, I, you know, I'm hanging out. And it was like the most, it's the most intimidating thing in your life when you go meet with these people. So Jesus has this ministry and he's walking around, he's, he's getting some momentum and he shows up at home and everybody goes, hey, it's Jesus. Who do you think you are? Remember, it's Jesus, he's back. Remember Mary's kid and, you know, James's brother. It's so good. To, wait, why are you talking like that? You don't get to talk like that. We know you, you come from our hometown. Nobody gets to do stuff like that. You're just Jesus. You can't be enough to be talking this way. Now, for me, I think there's a part of me that envisions Jesus being mostly about the size of an action figure. I can keep him in my pocket. And I like him when he's that, that sort of size and that kind of effectiveness in my life, when there's things in my life that literally do need a revolution. I've told you guys before that one of the things that catches me off guard all the time is how quick I am to anger. How quick I am to anger with my own kids, how quick I am to anger with other people, how I have this burning inside of me, and you're like, you seem like a nice guy. I, I think so too, but I guess not. That there's a part of my own life that is literally in need of a revolution because it can do damage beyond what I ever thought I could do. And I need Jesus to be small then because I don't want him to tell me. You know what? We need to work on There's some, you got to let me do something with that, Jeff. I know, but you're just little Jesus. 
You just stay right here. And when I need you, I'll let you know. I'm just going to button that up right there and keep you in there, buddy. There's so much of me that wants that. Now, when I encounter big issues in my life, when I'm in, up against huge stuff, when my kids get really sick, or I'm up against some kind of financial thing in my life, or I'm up against some big decision in my life, I need Jesus to be enormous. Jesus, I'm up against some huge stuff. Can you please help me with this stuff? Because you're everything. You're the one who brings about this kind of revolutionary thing in the whole world and the jubilee year, whatever. I'm in. Help me. But if you're not willing to help me, I need you to go back in my little pocket here, my shirt pocket, and just kind of keep it down. In your own life, we start talking about a revolution. Is there a part of you that says, I want Jesus to be who he really is, or I really would rather have him be just small at times? I want him to be big to serve me, and I want him to be small when it really starts to be difficult for me, when I have to make difficult decisions about my own life, about my own heart, about my kids, or my family, or my I want him to be tiny. What is it for you? Jesus having this conversation, you know, with these people. He anticipates their thoughts about how they're saying stuff and what's kind of going on in their minds. And he says this. This is, this is great. He says, this is verse 23. Luke 4, 23. He says this. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown. We've heard that you did in Capernaum. Meaning, Jesus has a reputation. He's got this stuff where he's doing all kinds of things. And basically what he says to them is, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jesus. Show us that all these things are possible. Make the show. Do some magic trick. Do something. Because we don't believe you because you're just Jesus and you're not big enough. We know that. So just show it off. Do something. Wow us with your magical powers. Whatever you got, we want to see it. Now, frequently, and you'll find this as you read the book of Luke or you read any of the gospels, really, of Jesus' life, you see this over and over again. People keep wanting a giant sign and he keeps going, if that's what you need, I can't give it to you. I won't give it to you. Because the wow factor will wear off. I need you to believe something and not have to see it. And the only people who kind of get this kind of reaction, this sort of I'll help you out kind of thing, are people who are so desperate that they don't need him to prove himself. They just need him. So Jesus doesn't give them what they want. And he basically then says, he's this, there's this kind of moment here where you get to see. It's a foreshadowing of what we see on the cross where the people, the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus says, if you're, why, don't you, why don't you take yourself down from this cross? Aren't you, aren't, aren't you who you say you are? Well, then do something to prove it. And Jesus is in this position already several chapters, if you will, before the cross, and he's still going, I'm not going to prove it to you people. You have every opportunity to believe, and you won't. And then he says this, verse 24. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He's referring, of course, to the historical prophets of the Hebrew faith, of, that there are all these prophets who would show up and say, hey, guys, I'm home. And then the people of their hometown would go, wow, we need you to stop talking. That's what would happen all the time. These people would call out God's will for these people, and they would go, nah, we're good. Thank you. And even worse, most of the time, prophets were killed, humiliated. Then he says this, I assure you that there were many widows in, Israel's, in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three years, three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now here's what he's saying. It's a, ma it's a massive offense. Back to the people. He throws it back in their face. Here's what he says. Not only am I not welcome in my hometown like all other prophets before me, but I want to give you a couple examples that these people would have known. They would have known these examples like by heart. And there's this guy named Elijah who's a prophet. And in this time in which he has his ministry, 
all of the people, there's this massive famine, and the only people who receive, the one, the one person who receives him during the famine looking for help from God, the one person who receives him is a widow who is not an Israelite. And there's this kind of unique story, but basically she has a son who dies, and Elijah heals this son and brings him back to life. He's the only son of a widow, which all this is to say is a widow is a person without any voice or power unless they have a male advocating for them in this time. If her son dies, the only thing she can do is just beg. And so Jesus heals this woman's, or not Jesus, Elijah heals this woman's son. And what he's saying is, the benefits of believing in the prophet, if you do not choose to accept them, will go somewhere else and you will be left out. He tells the story of Naaman the Syrian. Naaman's a guy who's a military commander. He's super powerful. Everybody respects him. He's this kind of, you know, big time guy. He's not an Israelite. But he goes to talk to this prophet named Elisha with an S-H. Elisha, and he says, I got, I got leprosy. Through a little bit of an exchange, and through some conversation and you know, all kinds of stuff, Elisha says, you gotta go wash yourself in the Jordan River, which is, on Israelite ter- which is in Israel, not in where you're from, from Syria. And humbling himself, this guy Naaman goes to the water, washes himself, and is healed. And what, he, what Jesus is saying is, There are a lot of people in the time of Naaman who are in Israel who suffered from from some kind of skin disease like leprosy, and they were not healed. But Naaman, who needed and wanted God's healing, came to Elijah and was healed. Jesus is saying, you guys right here, I am right here right now. I am the prophet who has come to you in your own hometown and you are rejecting me, which means all of God's goodness, all of his blessing will go to some other people if you reject it. Now what they imagine is because, hey, we're of the insider people. We're, you know, it's us. We're the Israelites. We're under the oppression of the Roman. I mean, we're, we're pre-qualified for you to be awesome to us, for God to be awesome to us, and that's not what happens. Jesus is saying, if you don't want me, you can't have all of the blessing that goes with me. You know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a passage in, in Deuteronomy, actually, where, um, the, this, I just read this this past week, where uh, the, God says to his people, I didn't choose you because you're powerful or mighty. I didn't choose you because you were awesome. I didn't choose you because you were numerous, because you have so many people. I chose you because you're mine, because I love you. You're my people because I love you, not because you proved it or earned it. And the mistake that the Israelite people make is they start saying, because we're God's people, we must then therefore must also already be declared awesome. We're, we must be awesome because God chose us. What's happening here is the same thing. God will definitely rescue us because we're us. It doesn't matter what we think. And Jesus, you keep saying it's not going to be us. Well, then you must not be the guy. It has to be for us. It has to be because this is what God has always promised. And yet in some way or another, there's this rejection. See, people don't want Jesus to be this revolutionary. They don't want him to paint a picture of what ought to be. They don't want him to paint a picture even of the, the sort of problem with what is in some cases. Because the, the idea that he would call them, first of all, Jesus is just too small. He's just a regular old guy. Secondly, that it involves some kind of exclusion of them from the, the participation in God's work or whatever that might be. And then lastly, that the implications of this kind of revolution are just way too daunting. The idea of releasing people, as we already mentioned in some way or another, over and over people are invited to follow Jesus and he, he doesn't paint a picture for them that's like, it's really easy. I just want you to know when you follow me, everything will probably work out. There will be no struggle. You will have to give up nothing. 
everything will be just so smooth and wonderful. And you should follow him. That's never how he says it. He keeps challenging these crowds of people. Are you sure you want this? It is going to be really difficult. The road ahead of us is hard. The, the, the gate, the, the path is narrow. The, the, the gate is small. It is so incredibly challenging. Are you sure you want this? And people go, uh, mm, yes, I think so. And he keeps turning people away because it's just too hard. What we'll see as we look at this series over and over again, you'll see that this idea of releasing people and believing in God's provision and associating with outsiders, all these kind of revolutionary concepts that Jesus is putting forward are things that just absolutely undermine people's idea of what should be. And they reject him. Then here's what happens at the end of this passage. All the people in the synagogue, this is verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and understandably so. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. We don't really like what you're saying. Now, this is essentially, this is like a fast way in which you sort of prepare for a stoning. This is like the Lynch-style stoning of someone. You take them to a cliff, throw them off, and then everybody throws rocks at them. That's what's supposed to happen. They're so angry that he would say this stuff that they want to kill him. It's not like, oh, you're not for me. They're so offended about what Jesus is saying. And this is a marker of a revolutionary. That he positions himself in such opposition to the status quo that the people who have to gain things from the status quo say, we must silence this person, and they try to kill him. And then you have, I don't, this, verse 30 is the most perplexing thing in the world to me. They try to throw him off the cliff, and then, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Like, for someone who's a Star Wars fan, this is the ultimate Jedi move. This isn't the Messiah you're looking for. You know, like, wait, what? You know, like, we're going to throw him off, everyone grab a rock, we're going to push him off the cliff. I don't think you will. He just walks through him. We don't really know. All this is basically pointing to, this isn't my time yet. But Jesus doesn't let them kill him right there. However, he decides to do it. Now, Jesus initiates a revolution. I'm going to just give you a couple things to think about. He initiates a revolution. It starts right here. And people are going, I'm not sure I want this revolution. Already in our own church, we've seen you as a group of people who were here last week, and even in this week as we're beginning to see people, you know, step into some big steps. We're beginning to see our church say, you know what, we actually want to be a part of it. We believe in what ought to be. We don't know how it's all supposed to work, and we don't ever, you know, nobody here, as we say often, gets it all right. Nobody has all the answers. But we're serious about following Jesus and the implications of what it means to be a radically generous people. Those are all things that are incredibly important. But Jesus initiates a revolution. And it isn't merely that the people to whom he's talking are just the recipients. Like, that's great. We'll just watch you do your thing, Jesus, and we'll sit here and you can go. What we'll see in the next couple weeks is he keeps calling people to follow him in this kind of radical life. We don't simply go, that's great that Jesus does this. We actually get to be co-participants in, co-workers in. And it is unbelievably scary what he's asking people to do to live free of this, to live an act of rebellion against the way that the world already is. Figure out what it means to have captives released from our own lives. We're going to look over the next couple weeks about what it means to believe in God's power. This association with outsiders and this choosing of difficult things on purpose is what people who belong to Jesus do. Now, let me ask you, in your own life, as you consider Jesus, is he the Jesus that is big enough to be Lord in your life? Meaning that he is the ultimate authority. For some of you, you have faced huge trial in your life. You have addictions. 
You have sorrow, you have pain, you have brokenheartedness. And you go, I've tried to let Jesus be big enough for that, and he's not been big enough. And for some reason or another, there's some part of you that goes, I don't think Jesus can really handle it. And there's a part of us, if we're really honest, that wants to hold on to some things and take control over those things because even though he's painting a picture of what ought to be, he may not be, as we believe this, scary enough. He may not be powerful enough to get us there. That's scary. Others of us, as we think about what this looks like, We've always imagined ourselves because we've been a part of a church, we grew up in the church, whatever it might be, that we're kind of already on the inside. It doesn't matter how we live or what we think about Jesus, that whatever God's supposed to do, he's just going to pour it out on us. Jesus is saying, you really are going to need to want me in your life. And then as we look at the implications here, what this all means, some of us are going, I wonder, I wonder if I can do this. This is scary stuff. Do you want to be a part of this revolution? Let's pray together. Jesus, we know what is in our lives. We know that it's broken. We know there are moments and seasons where things that we would like to be um, where they are kind of are, that things sort of work out. And we also know, Father, there are seasons in our lives where things are so clearly not the way we intend them to be. It's not the way you intend them to be, and we have brokenness and heartache. We believe, Father, in your picture and your power to bring about what ought to be in our lives. Lord, I'm grateful for a church of people who say, we'll take some courageous steps. We'll give radically. We'll serve radically. We won't ask for anything in return. Jesus, might that be a path to freedom for us? Not that in any way we're trying to earn your goodness toward us but that because you are already good, because you are already so radically generous to us, fearlessly radically generous to us, that we might say, because of that, we can serve and we can love in new ways and we can forgive in new ways. Lord, we, we receive your release from captivity. Whatever might be holding us down, Holy Spirit, would you give to us the freedom to overcome those things which have been holding us captive? Would you reveal to us, Father, in our own hearts the things that we think are creating freedom but are actually creating captivity? Jesus, would you release us into the world to live out this kind of radical generosity, not just on a weekend or during a month, but during our whole lives, that we would be known as people who belong to you, and because we belong to you, we live out a faith of radical generosity where the beauty of the church is expressed outside these walls. So, Father, we respond to you. Some of us, Father, will need to come forward and pray with some of our prayer team will be up front. Others of us will need to to write prayers down to place them in the prayer wall, and, and the rest of us, Father, we will sing We will put our own prayers to music that we might respond to you. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray and we respond to you. Amen.